You know, thinking about the, the country, the culture, the church, uh, in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven churches, and you look at what the Lord said to them. Tremendous application for today. Tremendous. Glenn, would you pull that down? I think I'm a little bit loud, am I? A little bit too loud tonight. Just pull that down just a little bit. But anyway, uh, when you think of the challenges that those churches faced in their Greco-Roman culture of the day, so much application to us uh, in our current day. And I think you're going to see that as you get into some of the other letters uh, even more so than tonight's, but as you get into some of the others that had to do with their culture, uh, you're going to see a lot of the application uh, to us today. So we're going to look at these seven letters, and then probably after this, we'll go into Hosea. We've never done a series on Hosea. So we're going to try to cover, kind of bounce between Old Testament and New Testament. John Stott had written a wonderful little book called What Christ Thinks of the Church. If you don't have that, you don't have that book. Uh, it's a thin paperback. It's not uh, awfully expensive either. You can probably go on Amazon and get that. John R.W. Stott, What Christ Thinks of His Church. And it's on these letters. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Uh, but let's pick up tonight looking at the church in Ephesus, returning to your first love. Uh, Jesus, notice this is Jesus addressing his church. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In her book on Revelation, uh, Anne Graham Locks, her book is entitled A Vision of His Glory, tells the story of an occasion from her growing up years that kind of um, really made an impact on her in a funny way. As you can imagine, uh, her parents were always being interviewed. Different magazines or newspapers or 
uh, other kinds of reporting agencies, Christian ministries, were always coming to their home in Montreat, uh, North Carolina, and sitting down with Billy Graham and doing interviews. And uh, one such company had called, and they'd been invited in, so... Uh, Ann Graham Lott said her mother Ruth was busy for days doing spring cleaning. I mean, from floor to ceiling, everything in between, she was doing a tremendous job getting the whole family, all the kids involved in cleaning. Wanted a sparkling house when the news media got there. Some of you ladies can relate to that, right? And they came in on the day of the interview. They spent a lot of time with the cameras and Ann was talking about the wiring, the extensive wiring, just what a huge setup it was. And the family was seated there and everybody was positioned just so in their place and you know, it was a perfect picture of the, of the Graham family. And then the uh, producer uh, called for quiet on the set and lights and action and all that and all the cameras came up and the lights came up and these bright, bright, bright television lights. And Ruth was appalled. She was so embarrassed. She thought her house was spotless. <laughs> but under those lights, those television lights, they were looking up and seeing cobwebs and dust bunnies. And, and Ann said her mom was so embarrassed. The house that she thought was spotless wasn't as spotless as she had imagined. And, you know, in these chapters right here, we, we see a spotlight on the church, don't we? We see the Lord's spotlight zeroing in on His church and giving a report and a challenge to each church. You know, when we think of churches, all kinds of different churches today, large churches, small churches, Anglo, ethnic churches, some that are mixed racially, others that are uh, rich, some poor, uh, some conservative, some liberal, some traditional, some contemporary. There's as many different kinds of churches today as there are cereal brands on the cereal aisle at Foodline or Hare's Tea. Uh, but you know, a question we need to ask ourselves when we think of the church today, what's Christ think about? It's not what we think about. I mean, that's important enough. But what really matters is what does Christ think of His church? What's important to him? We know he loves his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He loves his church, but what does he see as he looks, looks at it? Does he condone much of what we do? Does he condemn some of what we do? Let's hope not. But what does he condone and condemn? And let's remember, folks, when we're talking about the church, who are we talking about? Us, you and me. Christians make up the church, the bride of Christ. And so what does Christ think as he looks at us? And what we're going to see tonight 
is that everything can be in place in, in a church. Everything can be in perfect order. And yet, if our devotion to the person of Christ is waning, we've come up short and we are in need of radical change. Now, there's a pattern in each of these letters. The church is going to be identified and you're going to see how, how uh, much of the description of that church will apply to the city that it was in. Okay? There's, there's a lot of commonality. There's some things that are brought in from that culture because after all, those churches are in that culture. And so there's going to be a lot of that. And each church is going to be described and something good will be pointed out. So a commendation. And then in all but two of the churches, there will be a condemnation. There's something they need to work on. And then there'll be counsel, what they need to do in order to work on that, that they've just been condemned about. And there'll be a promise or a warning whether they do or don't take action with the counsel that's given to them. And then each letter will end with an invitation. The Lord will say, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You know, we listen, but do we hear? Do we really hear? So again, there's that common layout, common uh, pattern. And each letter is addressed to the angel of the church. The Greek word for angel, though, just simply means messenger. Uh, perhaps most Bible scholars think that who is being addressed is the pastor. You didn't know your pastor was an angel, right? But anyway... Uh, and there'll be a description of Christ given. And the description in each letter of Jesus that's given, you could turn back to chapter 1 of Revelation and see that each description of Christ plays off of some aspect that was given of his description in chapter 1. So again, this common pattern. So first up is the church of Ephesus. Now Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city. And it was perhaps the most important city in Asia Minor. And it wasn't a small backwater place. In fact, it probably had a population of about 300,000. Uh, you probably like watching the Olympics, you know, don't you? Maybe you like the winter games or the summer games. Uh, well, they had something akin to that at Ephesus uh, each May. Uh, very cosmopolitan area. It was a great commercial city as well. Uh, it was an inland city three miles from the sea, but the mouth of the Caister River allowed access and uh, actually provided for Ephesus to be the best harbor in all of Asia Minor. And then on top of being a great harbor uh, city, there were four trade routes that ran through Ephesus. And so between the harbor and the highways, it became known as the gateway to Asia or the Vanity Fair of Asia. I've given you all this. I didn't give you any blanks to fill in tonight. So uh, no excuses tonight for not listening or knowing the material, right? Well, on top of... Uh, 
a cosmopolitan city and being a great commercial city, it was a religious center as well. It was the center of the worship of Artemis. Uh, to the Greeks, Artemis. To the Romans, Diana. The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It stood in an area 425 feet by 220 feet. There were 126 pillars of marble in the temple that stood 60 feet tall. 36 of these columns were overlaid with gold and jewels. Now, the book of Acts tells us that during Paul's third missionary journey, he taught in Ephesus for two years. You can go home tonight and read in Acts chapter 19 about that. And then in verse 10 of Acts 19, we learn that Paul had a great deal of success in Ephesus from the hand of the Lord. In fact, the Lord was blessing Paul's work there so much that the tradesmen were suffering economically because they made idols and shrines for the temple of Diana. And by Paul having such a successful gospel ministry with people turning away from idols to serve the living and true God, some of these craftsmen were losing, losing business. And so they got quite upset. Uh, so there's a big uproar that they caused in the city. We know that altogether Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. Now you think of the people who served this church. Timothy, Tychicus, the Apostle John as well. They all served this church. And then you could also add to their names other names in the New Testament like Aquila and Priscilla and also Apollos. And Ephesus was the only church that two apostles wrote to it. And again, who are those two? Paul and John. Yes. Uh, so quite a prestigious place. And uh, we're introduced to this church, and I want you to notice it says that Christ holds the churches in his right hand. What's the idea there? Control. He's Lord of the church. And then we see him walking in the midst. What's the idea, idea there? Watch care. He knows every need. He knows every temptation you face, every decision you wrestle with. He is with every believer in every church. He is present. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is in our midst. And you know, the psalmist says he never slumbers, he never sleeps. He's always with us. That should be comforting. Now, to some people, it's threatening. Because maybe they got some things in their lives they're not proud of. Maybe even things in their church they're not proud of. But it should be comforting and reassuring to know that Christ is in our midst. He's walking among us. He's always with us. And he sees everything. And he knows everything. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-present. Now, folks, should that change the way we conduct ourselves? It should, shouldn't it? You know, the scripture says every idle word that we speak will give an account on, on the day of judgment. Well, how does he know about our words? Because he's with us. He knows everything. 
And so again, it, this should bring a little bit of a sober reality to our lives, right? There's nothing hidden from his eyes. Well, secondly, we see here the commendation. And I apologize for my voice tonight. I'm fighting this crud that everybody else around here seems to be fighting. But we see the commendation there in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Well, right away, we know that they were a working church. I mean, they're a busy place. They're laboring for the Lord. They're probably building children's programs and youth programs and men's and ladies' ministries and music programs and doing all kinds of missions work there at Ephesus. I mean, they're a busy place. They're very busy. There's no way that James would have said to the church at Ephesus that faith without works is dead because they were a working church. Dr. DeHaan, a great Bible teacher, once said, to come to Christ costs nothing. To follow Christ costs something. But to serve Christ costs everything. And you know, the Bible says that God knows all about our labors and He will reward our labors. We're saved by grace, but we know at the judgment seat of Christ, rewards will be based on our work for the Lord. Some might wonder in that day why their reward is not as great, but it's because of what they do right now. Paul says that some of our work will be nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble, and it'll be burned. Other work will be like silver and gold, and we'll be rewarded. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that our labor for the Lord will not be in vain. So if now you feel like some of your work is not recognized or it seems in vain, guess what? It's not. Because to the one that it matters most with, he sees your work. He sees your labor. And so keep on. Uh, they were a working church. They were laboring for the Lord. It was hard work and perseverance. Uh, they were a discerning church uh, also. You'll notice that. They were a discerning church. What do you see about that in verse 2? You cannot tolerate wicked people, he says. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You know, John, the same one who's writing Revelation, wrote 1 John. And what did he say in 1 John chapter 4? That we're to test the spirits to see if they are of God. Because not everything that claims to be of the Lord is of the Lord, right? At Ephesus, they were a discerning church. They were putting things to the test. Now, we're not told exactly what they did to, to put things to the test. I wish we had some kind of information on what exactly they were doing to put people to the test. I think it'd be very helpful uh, to folks today, but we're, we're not told what it was they were doing, just the fact that they were doing it. They were very discerning. They were like the Bereans, exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a principle. I was going to say, it says there, listen to the Spirit. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All in the guidance. The guidance of the Lord, collectively together. They're a working church, a discerning church. And, and folks, in when we think of discernment, you know, we're to be welcoming of everybody, but we're not to be condoning of everyone and everything, right? It's not the loving thing to do to let people continue in sin that will end up destroying them. You know? That's not the loving thing to do at all. Uh, at Ephesus, they weren't afraid to call sin, sin. Well, they were not only a working church and a discerning church, but they were an enduring church too. They would not fainted. They weren't quitters. He approves them here for their steadfastness and their perseverance. <clears throat> you know, we've all got to go through a lot of trials in life and heartache, don't we? That's just a part of life. Uh, just live long enough and you're going to experience trials. You're going to experience trouble of some sort. They had, they had encountered all of that there at Ephesus. But they had persevered. They had great patience. And the Greek word is hupomene. It's, it's a word that refers to not just a, a passive kind of patience and endurance, but being able to hold up under a heavy load. A heavy load is put on you. And maybe you're walking through deep waters, deep trials, but you're able to persevere and hold up and, and be patient. That's how they were in this church. And, and he says here that you've done it all for my name's sake. You know, people will do a lot of different things for different reasons. And, and Jesus says, all this good that I've just said about you there at Ephesus, you've, you're doing it all for me. For me. You know, it kind of makes you wonder as Jesus looks at our lives, would, would he commend us like this? I hope so. Are you laboring for the Lord? Uh, are you a worker? Are you a complainer and a gossiper and a spectator? Uh, what makes up all the chapters of your life, your Christian faith? You know, like most people, you might have some chapters you would just as soon forget about. But what makes up the overall chapters of your Christian walk? What would the Lord say to you? Well, again, he commends them. But then let's move on to see what, what happens. Thirdly, the condemnation. Look at verse 4. Yeah, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. It's like he's saying everything's good, but... Nevertheless, nevertheless, don't you hate it when somebody compliments you and then says, but? <laughs> Why can't they just compliment you and let it go at that? But it's the Lord Jesus here, and he does it because he's perfect. He's the perfect standard. Now, again, on the surface, everything looked great at Ephesus, but underneath, at the level of the heart, where men don't see, but God does see, what Jesus say to them? You've left your first love. 
fact that uh, we love one another, and by that, all people are going to know exactly. that love is insane. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have the actions, obviously. Sure. But they have the attitude that supported it. Exactly. They, they apparently didn't. And, and he says you've left. Not that you've lost, but you've left. What's that imply? They chose to do it. it. It's a departure. It's a deliberate departure that they are responsible for. I'm sure it was. Probably, uh, what's that song talks about? A slow fade. Right? That's how it happens, a slow fact. And it's a very strong word that's used here. It's a word here that was sometimes used of divorce. Very strong accusation he's making against them here. You know, the furnace was still there, but the fire was going out. The folks at Ephesus were laboring, but apparently love for the Lord and love for one another wasn't their primary motivation anymore. And you know, in the Bible, love counts. In fact, if you don't think so, just read 1 Corinthians 13. Because you know, Paul said, if I give my body to be burned, but don't have love. If I do this, but don't have love. If I do this, don't, you know, I can speak with the tongues of angels and of men, but have not love. I'm just a clanging symbol. What's Paul saying there in 1 Corinthians 13? He's talking about the necessity of love, right? It's got to be the foundation that, that kind of motivates and undergirds everything. Yeah, on that 1 Corinthians 13 thing, because he's dealing with faith, hope, and charity. And the charity is the one um, attribute or whatever that transcends all the time yep. eternity. Whereas the hope is going to be realized, the faith is going to be actualized. So exactly. Yep. But the love's got to be there. The love's got to go on. It's, it's going to be there. Yep. <laughs> Folks, think about it. Uh, when we think about the gifts of the Spirit, all of our labor we do for the Lord, it's got to be demonstrated with love. The Lord doesn't just measure our labor. He measures our love. Is our love, is our labor a labor of love? That's what matters. Apparently they've gotten so busy and so active, somewhere along the line they just started going through the motions and their labor wasn't a labor of love anymore. And so what's Jesus say to them? You've taken a great fall. I think of what the Lord said to people in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God said, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. And then in verse 5 of Jeremiah 2, he says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they've now strayed so far from me? Same type thing there. A young, vibrant love that has grown cold. It, it's lacking something. And that's what had happened at Ephesus. 
Now, folks, if that's you tonight, I want to say to you, something is wrong at the core of your Christianity. You've got a problem that you need to pay attention to. You know, I can hear it now almost. Oh, boy, it's Sunday. I got to drag myself in there and work in children's church today. Pastor's got to be back. It'll be a long sermon. Oh, my goodness. We pack us a snack. I don't like this song. Jonathan's having us sing song. Oh, my goodness. I guess I'll get up in the choir and do it. You know, it's just kind of like, How do you hear all that Can stuff like this happen? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. So again, I would ask you, you know, are you laboring for the Lord, persevering, hanging in there, not quitting, patiently enduring, but is it also a labor of love? Or is it just kind of humdrum, going through the motions, I guess i got to do this again. Something to think about in our Christian walk, isn't it? And then look at the counsel. In verse 5, what's the counsel he gives? Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand was the church. What's he tell them to do in the council? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Think about that. Remember those former days. The works he's talking about here, I don't think are the works of the labor that he was mentioning earlier. I'm thinking that it's probably the works of how they got into that close relationship of love with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. He's telling them to remember all that, isn't he? Remember. Remember what it used to be like. Sometimes I'll, in marriage counseling, I'll have a couple just tell me what their marriage was like back when they seemed to love one another, you know. And they'll kind of describe what it was like, what all they were doing. And, you know, hopefully they'll say, ding, 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 ding. We're not doing that anymore. You know, uh, feelings follow actions, right? Feelings follow actions. And that's what he's saying to them here. Go back and do what you did at first. Uh, they're to remember so they'll do something about it. Not so they'll just reminisce and think about the good old days and how, how sweet it was back then, but so they'll remember to a point of we've got to do things to get back to that. J. Oswald Sanders once said, you're as close to the Lord right now as you want to be. And that's true, isn't it? Notice though, it's not, again, it's not just remembering for the sake of writing a journal or something about remembering, but he says, 
Remember and then do something about it. Repent and do the first works. Change. It's time to go back. If there's ever been a time in your spiritual life where you were closer to the Lord than you are right now, you need to go back to that point. But again, he's not talking about geography. He's talking about the position of our heart. You know, sometimes you'll hear young people say, you know, they'll come back from these summer camps and, and I mean, they'll be on the mountaintop. And you say, well, what y'all do every day? Well, right after breakfast, well, first of all, before breakfast, they were, all of us had to have a quiet time. And then after breakfast, we'd have a service. And then we were to break and individually go our own ways and have, have a Bible study. And, and they'll just go on and on talking about what they were doing. And, oh, I felt so close to the Lord. Well, what about that stuff have you done since you got back from camp? I've not done any of that. Well, you think there's a connection? You know? Uh, Christ says, get back in there. Do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. Now, admittedly, as I look around this room tonight, myself included, uh, most of us in here are a little bit older. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and and what have you done through the years along in here? Some storage, or maybe you're right here or something, you know? Right? Maybe you think, man, I remember what it was like to be 20 or 25, how good I felt, how, how much in shape I was. Well, probably back then you were playing a sport or something, or you were exercising or going to the gym or something like that, right? What are you doing now? Maybe none of that. None of that. Well, if you want to feel better physically, what do you got to do? Go back and do some of what you used to do when you felt better. I know I need to do that. I'll admit to it. That's a physical analogy of a, a spiritual truth here. Go back and do what you did first. And again, the warning is, Jesus says, if you don't, I'll remove your candlestick. He's to, folks, understand what he's saying here. He's telling the church at Ephesus, he'll close their door. And you know what? Apparently that happened. Because you go on later in church history, there's nothing about this church. He, he removed it. You know, we talk today sometimes about once vibrant churches. I, I remember here, hearing a testimony some time ago. Now, fortunately, the church I'm going to tell you about is flourishing again. That's a praise. But the church that Charles Spurgeon preached at in London. I mean, they were booming. <clears throat> they kept having to move into different buildings. And he was preaching to 10,000 a week. And then before computers, they people were transcribing his sermons 25,000 more copies a week. And you get into the modern era and travelers over there who go through 
London and some of these historic churches, they go in uh, Spurgeon's church. And somebody made a comment one time, they were there on a Sunday morning to worship. And there was basically what looked like a Sunday school class in the first couple of rows down front. Maybe 50 people. And that's all that massive church was. Once vibrant church. Almost gone. Again, in recent years, there's things happening there again, fortunately. Uh, but the Lord's saying, I'll, I'll, I'll close your doors. You know, uh, you think about it. You say, you know, why? Well, a, a church, a group of believers who lose their first love and their faith then just becomes religion, just going through the motions. A group of people like that, a church like that, cannot be sustained through the years. There, there's no life there. And pretty soon what happens? People die off or get tired of just going through the motions. You get tired of duty. Duty doesn't motivate forever. Right? It takes love to motivate. Pretty soon, churches just fall by the wayside. What happened? No love. And Jesus is saying here, I'll do that to you. And he says, but listen. Listen to my spirit calling. Listen to me. Hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And go back and return before it's too late. And listen to what I'm saying to you. He's appealing to them. So what's some takeaways, some lessons? Again, we just need to reiterate, the Lord is present in His church. He's in our midst. He sees all. He knows all. Secondly, busyness for the Lord's sake is commendable on one level, but it's not sufficient. God cares about your heart. And then thirdly, when the Lord points out a shortcoming in us, simply feeling bad about it's not the answer. Repentance is. And then lastly, when God disciplines His people, not to respond to His discipline puts one in a worse position. I want you to think about those application points. Let me ask you, where are you? Do you need to go back to something? What's the Spirit saying to you? What's your quiet times been like lately? How about your fellowship with other Christians? Are there some first steps you need to take? You need to put yourself back in the position of really growing in the love of the Lord again. Do you love Him? And is your work motivated by love? Any thoughts you have on this letter tonight before we close?
that is just constantly making noise, and when you get a room full of men that are in leadership role of the church, that the church is putting trust in them for leadership, and all you hear is a bunch of cicadas on the board meetings, mm. and there's nothing productive that comes from it. Mm -hmm. The reason that I think Ephesus may have lost their first love is not the individuals in the church, because you're, you're, you're implying that we as individuals who are the church may have lost our first love, but I think mm -hmm. in this situation, it's collective. Now, sure. I think Absolutely. it all started when the leaders of the church started acting like cicadas, <laughs> and all they were doing was making noise against each other, and the direction of the church suffers. failed, right? And then that, that, that noise, Sounds like personal testimony. You've seen that. I've seen it, yeah. And that noise is like a cancer that spreads to the members yep. from the direct leadership. Yep. And when the leadership pushes that cancer into the membership, then the membership becomes bickery and, you know, gossipy and, and sure. backstabbing because, you know, your husband is the one that's causing this problem and your husband's causing this problem and the wife starts bickering back and forth and, and, you know, a happy wife is a happy wife. A happy wife in church is a happy wife in church. And I think a lot of this has to do with the pride and, and, sure. and arrogance Instead of humility and, and yeah. exactly repenting of your arrogance to each other and asking each other for forgiveness as leaders yeah. and refocusing, I think that's what Christ is talking about. Go back to your first love. Your first love is being unified together in the direction of the church. And I think in Ephesus, as I've seen with many other churches, even in today, the pride goes before the fall. Mm -hmm. And you can link every sin, and you can link every destruction of church, you can link destruction of marriages, all to that five-letter word. It's always there. Now, my question to you is this. Why is the Catholic Church still thriving? Because they are not doing anything in the direction of what Christ would call them to do. They're, but yet, they still thrive, they still have an abundance of, of followers, but yet, there's a little work that's being shown from that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's... Um, but see, Ephesus is being a, a, a practical issue that God's trying to convict us of. Mm. Yep. Well, like I say, it sounds like personal testimony. <laughs> Something you've seen in your life. Great. I'd say that even though this church can't no longer exists. Mm -hmm. The reason that it's here is because it gives us instruction because even though we may not have a church today called the Church of Ephesus, there are churches throughout the world that fit this mold. Oh, absolutely. So this transcends this particular time frame. Now, being where they were with the Isthmus games that you were talking about, the day Mm -hmm. You know, and it being such a commerce center and uh, the world around them having such an impact on them as far as false religions and whatnot. Um, I mean, there are churches that experience that all around the world. Absolutely. So it's, to me, it's still yeah. just as relevant today. Absolutely. There's some church that fits into each of these categories yeah. somewhere. And, and that's a major reason I don't interpret these letters the way some do. That each one of these seven churches stands for a particular time 
in church history. And they would say the church at Ephesus stands for the early apostolic church that didn't continue in the faith and love of the apostles. I mean, that's how some interpret these letters, that each one of these seven letters stand for a period in church history. And I think as others have pointed out, in any period of church history, you can find characteristics of any of these seven churches. It, one, one church here out of these seven cannot be said to represent every church in a particular age. I think a lot of it, when I was young, we heard more of what you can't do, you can't. It, you didn't hear that much about loving each other. Right. And I think back that, you know. Sure. It was just, we were. Fear based. Fear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember coming home and saying to my mother, what does the word carnal mean? I <laughs> carnal. <laughs> 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 what do you do? <laughs> but uh, 
It was just like you can read right here. You know, just, uh, something happened and uh, started majoring on minor things that weren't that really important. I mean, yeah, yeah. So. It seems to be human nature to we some had, degree. I had a fellow from Clarksville, Mississippi, one of the teachers, he called me all the way to New Jersey. In New Jersey, he says, uh, yeah, you were blowing his church, you were thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but he wanted me to find dirt about the pastor, but I wouldn't, I didn't see He says, you know, little pastor, you know, he, <laughs> his people smoking down there, they were smoking cigarettes in Clarksdale, Mississippi. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, and uh, so, <laughs> well, let's go to our intercessory prayer time. I'll have Eddie get us started. Did Eddie do okay last week? Okay. Eddie and Cordella? Okay. They didn't handle snakes or anything, did they? <laughs> you know, you know, one of my one of my best friends growing up. He he grew up in uh, a Lutheran church in Charlotte. He literally thought in the Baptist church that he asked me about one time. He thought, and he was serious, that we handle snakes. I'm like, Greg, you're crazy. We don't, <laughs> Southern Baptist churches don't do that. So you didn't handle snakes, did you? No. Eight, eight worms. Eight worms, okay, okay. <laughs>